0: Hey everybody, this is Jessica Manley here from the National Young Farmers Coalition. And today we are bringing you episode number five of our six week Washington Young Farmers Coalition takeover series, Farm Resilience and COVID-19 in Washington State, which explores food access, social justice, mental health, and farming through one of the toughest seasons yet. Today's show is an interview with farmer Vero Vergara about food access and social justice. Vero is a founding worker-owner of Sweet Hollow Farm in Woodinville, Washington. If you want to support our Washington chapter and our 45 other chapters across the U.S., become a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition today at youngfarmers.org join. And you can sign up for our advocacy network by texting FARMERS to 40649. Just a note, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Elizabeth. Thank you again for listening to another episode in our podcast series, Farm Resilience and COVID-19 in Washington State. I'm a small-scale organic farmer and food systems worker in Washington State, and the conversation that you're about to hear is a real treat. With me is a friend and just all-around brilliant superhero, Vero Vergara. And in this episode, we really get to dive deep into how cultures of supremacy have created an unequal distribution of resources. And that's including land and resources need, needed to feed people. So Veto and I are having a conversation about food access that goes really, really deep down into the roots of how distribution of resources can be incredibly um, inequitable Vero Vergara is a non-binary disabled brown queer farmer and food systems cultural worker based on Coast Salish territories Veto is a founding worker owner of Sweet Hollow Farm in Woodinville, Washington they work at the intersection of autonomous food systems building and liberatory community care this conversation is a real treat so thank you for joining us
2: Hello, Beto. Hi, Elizabeth. I am so looking forward to this conversation. I just want to start out by thanking you for taking time to talk about food access with us. And why don't we just start by um, please introducing yourself as you would to a large group of people.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've also been really looking forward to this conversation. But, um, my name is Beto Vergara. I'm a farmer and food systems cultural worker based on Coast Springs territories. Um, I'm a worker owner of State Hollow Farms, which is like a fledgling worker owned cooperative that my partner, Caitlin Ehlers, and I started, uh, four years ago now. So we currently grow diversified vegetables or um, and also some scraps of meadow on one acre in Woodinville, Washington. Um, in addition to my work as a farmer, I have previously served on the board of Washington Young Farmers Coalition, uh, and I am also currently acting as the director of Lower Mobile Farm Stamps based in Seattle. Right now, I'm really focused on learning about and kind of moving into the work of value chain coordination, And other similar food systems work um, to connect BIPOC communities to BIPOC producers locally. And so this work is still really emergent, um, but it's taking shape and it's feeling really exciting and generative. And I would say that the many facets of my work are unified through my focus on what I call uh, autonomous food systems building. Mm -hmm. Which means that I work in in multiple modes to build towards systems of community-led food production, processing, and also distribution that specifically are serving BIPOC, queer, disabled, low- and fixed-income, unhoused, and elder community members.
2: So good. It's going to be such a juicy conversation. So so. um, just to give folks a context of when we're recording this, it's the beginning of July, and we're really still in the midst of um, what it looks like to be in this intersecting place between the global pandemic of COVID-19, the movement for Black Lives, and all of the consequences of those things interacting with each other. And so I'd really love to just know, how is your community? What does food access look like right now? And what is, what's causing hunger?
3: I think those are all really good questions. Um, yeah, and what a time we're living in. Um, let's see. My community of farmers and food systems people, you know, service industry folks, I feel like we're all over the place right now. Farmers seem to be experiencing the gamut of impacts from this pandemic and economic crisis moment. Um, that is also sure to last. You know, some folks are experiencing more exposure and financial stability and also more hope than ever before. Um, I know that many of us small and mid-scale farmers are seeing a really significant increase in consumer demand, which I think we still have to see if uh, we can meet sustainably over time. So that's happening also while most farmers of color, I know, are working more fastidiously than ever. um, I feel like we're often working jobs on the side off farm while also doing some serious community and family caretaking as well so from my corner of the world i feel like i can safely say that we're all just like exhausted that beyond belief yeah it's been a really cold and wet june in western washington which i know you know about Mm -hmm. um yeah and i know that my farm has been having this is its hardest year so far and probably also the most meaningful year that we've been in operation so far. But um, yeah, most of my close people are organizers and artists, workers of many different trades, folks who are frontline health workers and medicine makers, um, farmers and, and food people who I know and love. And I'm queer, I'm non-binary and trans, I'm disabled, I'm brown and multiracial. And I also tend to share a lot of those intersections with my closest folks. And so in some pretty unsurprising to me ways, um, the general we of my closest community is honestly pretty well prepared to dig in and figure out how to survive this super wild historic time that we're in. I'd say that generally we've survived more than most already. And mm-hmm. I also know that we've been working on our love and power and solidarity in a liberatory way for a long time now. I think that hardships are really amplified and coming in fast right now. This is really something I'm thinking about all the time lately. Um, I know folks who are encountering the edge of what is this really quickly escalating economic crisis. So experiences like sudden job and housing losses, the stress and exhaustion that comes with those experiences. Um, There's also been a lot of deaths. And I think with that, um, with all of that, so much grief, and I really mm. sense this kind of collective, um, collective moment of being just grief stricken, and also grief stricken mm. and continuing to live on. So I'm definitely in a moment where I feel like I've lived many lives in the past four months. Um, but yeah, to answer your second question, you know, I think food access looks more complicated than ever, which is a really terrible complication, and it's only you know, exacerbated and multiplied by the many different crises communities are facing right now. So, I definitely um, see a reality that there isn't enough funding in all of emergency food initiatives to Mm -hmm. feed as many people as are in need or who are about to come into need soon. Um, And truly, you know, COVID-19 and the economic depression that we have yet to see um, is full extent are going to change our food systems forever almost really heavy heavy things to swim through Um, i think the imperialist and capitalist basis of of u.s agriculture has been nothing less than genocidal for black and indigenous and communities of color i think when we look um, from labor systems to systemic hunger you know all all of the systems so-called efficiencies have been carved out of the lives of people of color over multiple generations now i think popularly uh, many more people are coming to understand just the truly delusional framework that white supremacy um, and other cultures of supremacy have created for the distribution of resources and that includes land food supply uh, the infrastructure to the feed people at scale i think for some of my community access to the quality or the quantity of food that households are used to um, hasn't hasn't changed much. But for others, food access is and, and has been a daily dilemma, you know, and, and that dilemma has many valences and presentations. And so I know that many people in my community who don't have access to growing their own food uh, are relying on uh, things like food stamps, food banks, community mutual aid networks, um, and also the classic just like straight up Venmo style. Peer-to-peer mm-hmm. redistribution of mm-hmm. um to meet their their food needs right now. I think about that especially in my trans, disabled, and, and BIPOC community. Um, these practices around having each other's backs and, and redistributing wealth have been a truth of my whole adult life, um, and also back into the lives of our cultural ancestors as a strategies for meeting our most basic needs. Yeah, I've also recently heard from unhoused neighbors that hot meals and other basic needs resources that have been provided either by the county or different nonprofits uh, have been less frequent or ended altogether during the pandemic which is just horrifying and of course uh, that always happens with a little warning uh, let alone accountability so the communities that are supported by those offerings Um, so yeah I want to I want to dip into get to your question about what's causing hunger. Um, My answer to that is that, I think the consolidation of power over lands and food systems is what causes hunger. Mm. I believe that the dispossession of land, food, social technologies, the infrastructure for managing food at scale, and then all of the supporting resources for that, um, the capitalist and colonial modes of living just continue to steal and require over and over and over again. Um, those those dispossessions are all part of what makes hunger uniquely, complexly deadly.
2: Yeah,
3: I think when we look at food apartheid as a more intersectional understanding of food access, it makes it very clear that at a systemic level, there is intentional and violent repression um, against low income communities and communities of color in, in the U.S. context. I think that repression to concentrate wealth away from those communities while crushing agency um, through what is effectively austerity, food and health policy. I think there's no way around the reality that capitalism sees land, food um, and and our bodies as commodities. When we talk about who controls the land and food, who has the means to produce resources and distribute them, um, you know, we're talking about agency. I think there have been many ways of working towards food access, um, namely those that believe that we could ever see sustainable outcomes through charity or nonprofits um, or job creation alone, that I think really fail to address the transformative changes that are necessary right now um, to recover agency over the food system. Mm. It's really clear that it's not that we don't have or produce enough food to feed everyone um, but in the US context, issues like lifelong malnutrition um are killing many of us. And you know, that's a that's a miserable death under capitalism. I also want to put forward that when I get asked to speak about food systems and, and food access, at a certain point, I really think that we all have to understand food access as the euphemism that it is. You know, often when we're talking about food access, um what we're doing is speaking in niceties about reducing harm and developing preventative interventions against human suffering uh, and death from starvation and malnutrition. Yeah. I, I really think that we literally have to end capitalism, and also while that's happening, we have to see the creeping growth of fascism for what it is. Like if we if we don't follow through on those two um, those two things or those two realizations. Uh, we may never be addressing hunger, for the experience of violence and trauma that it is. If we don't recognize the source of harm that's there, uh, my question is, how how will we fully heal? Yeah,
2: we. I mean, the. I know it's just it's a big question, but I think that you're right. I think that we really have to to name what is actually going on for folks when they're experiencing hunger. And I really love how much, how, where you took us to with that question of what causes hunger. And so I'm curious to know, is there an example that you can speak to of something that's exciting within the food systems work or within food access work that might address some of that?
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think to get a little more concrete, in my eyes, one of the most exciting wins for food access recently has just been witnessing how many of us in our communities are turning to one another in mutual aid um, and really Mm -hmm. defining community care together. Um, in this moment, we're experiencing many different intersecting crises at once. And so, you know, mutual aid as a tactic uh, for survival has been important for a long time. And I, I feel excited for this moment because I think I'm genuinely seeing people invest in um, what will need to be, you know, a continuing ongoing political education process um, and also organizing to develop those, like, best, and then better, and then better than that practices um, that will allow us to reach appropriate scale. And I think mm-hmm. that scale is really necessary to address issues as deep and broad as hunger and poverty. Um, I think that centering accessible, decentralized, community-defined and determined approaches um, will allow us to work in, in a fundamentally different way to end hunger. I've been saying for years, uh, in different ways, that community-scale coordination, comprehensive transformative land reform, and also mm-hmm. organizing for the supply chain and mm-hmm. the unsettlement of land, um, you know, are all absolutely essential to invest in, especially as we talk about wanting to see a future of food sovereignty and food justice for our communities. Um, as I say that, you know, I, I think lately I've been really worrying about whether climate change um, or the rise of fascism can be mitigated in time for any of us as well. Yeah, and those those conditions would bring about to um, whole other horrifying alternative realities of hunger. and I, I really hope that we don't have to see those conditions become more a part of our reality than they already are.
2: That's right. Are there any resources that could make the work you're doing more effective? Since we would, I think all of us can say that we would like to live well. Um, Can you speak to where we, what direction we might be moving towards?
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, There are many resources that are necessary. Um I really want to see more BIPOC and queer folks welcomed um, and and recognized for the strategies of brilliance that we bring to Ag and Food Systems work. Um, beyond that, you know, I really I really want to see us resource with the land and support needed to build our organization, the way that supremacy culture outfits our white peers. Right? Like mm-hmm. I want to see free land and mm-hmm. water rights. For people of color and queer folks, um, we need to be prioritizing Black, Indigenous, and Trans projects within that. And I also want us to be gifted the technologies and tools, um, also the capital, to situate our projects as the longstanding community institutions that we genuinely long for them to become, and that and that we deserve. Um, I, I really want more farmers to study. Um, and come to realize the capacity that we have to build political power. Um, building political power comes through recognizing and naming um, our labor and our struggles together.
2: Um,
3: I think our political economy as, as farmers is intrinsically tied to the future of our climate and ecological health. And it's also tied to the economic conditions of our labor, especially as we are stewards of of food and materials. Um, I think it's really, really crucial for us to organize and to educate ourselves and our communities in profound ways right now. Um, you know, if it's not right now, we are very likely to not get another decade to try again. Mm Mm-hmm. And I also, yeah, I also want to be clear here, you know, what I'm asking for is definitely beyond the current dominant culture's vision of what success and access looks like for those of us on the margins. Um, I want to make it clear that that I, I believe this needs to be a process to be built around regional, multiracial, and um, cross-class coalitions. And I want us to be well organized and cohesive to the proper demands. And I hope that that will become a capable movement for the social and the political gains that we need to um, solidify just the basic right to healthful food. I think ultimately uh, the work of building food systems and supply chains um, and the redistribution of land and wealth through a liberatory decolonial framework is really nuanced and detailed work. Um, it's time for resource individuals and, and organizations to create their plans for genuine transfers of power right now. I think we need to put all that we can into BIPOC community owned uh, and land and, and food infrastructure um, we need to create and reshape our coalitions and those coalitions need to be able to make and maintain those wins in infrastructure and land permanent. Um, you know on a slightly different note i'll put out there for the listeners um, if you're someone who has any excess or unused land commercial buildings commercial kitchen food processing cold storage spaces, or just like the financial material resources um, that you can contribute to see this work happen, it's definitely time to reach out right now. Um, The type of infrastructure and property that's required to pull all of this off will take so many gifts of support. And so if you are someone who has more than you need, um, now is really the time to give it to those who are prepared to leverage those resources. We need to reach the most people possible right now um and I bring that to this conversation just to, to set intentions and, and invite the resources that we need to see into existence. I think the other thing that I want to insist on is um for folks to speak out and support BIPOC and queer and trans farmers um not just once but consistently and I think part of that um is building relationships and asking individual farmers uh, if it's monetary contributions or volunteering or some other kind of support um, that you can work towards, um, which of those is most useful, right? Like, it's genuinely not the same for everyone. Um, and the other note that I would say is, like, please don't be self-congratulatory about any of that giving. Like, it is time to just give it away and, and start building with people.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. As we wrap up this brilliant, wonderful conversation, is there anything else that you wanna share?
3: Yeah, I really hope that um, more people find ways into just the really necessary self-work that allows us to show up for liberatory community building. Um, and that also allows us to show up to build with our neighbors without continuing to perpetuate the harms, uh, of our racist and genocidal food system. I really think we need to do our work to build distress tolerance,
2: mm-hmm. um,
3: so that we can be in this for the long haul, right? Like we, yeah. we have to find ways of embracing working within crisis, which, um, is such a difficult reality. Um, I want others to arrive at the understanding that this liberatory work is definitely worth your lifetime of engagement. You know, find yeah. your people and fill up like now mm-hmm. more than ever. Um, mm-hmm. And so also take the moment to, um, you know, just invite those who are inclined that maybe haven't left in yet. Like, please, please, please make stewardship of land and water and the food shed part of your liberatory practice and vision. Um I really believe that this is some of the most necessary and serious work of our era. And we need as many people as possible to throw down, get ready to dismantle capitalist modes of food production. Um, and we also need to end settler domination of land and natural resources. And the, the time is absolutely now. And the time has come. I think we need to build together. I also want to want to throw in that, you know, I'm certainly not the only person <laughs> in the farm world, um, with the convictions that I've shared with you today, like, I find myself in conversation, yeah, (laughs) there's so many people, there's so Um, many, (laughs) and I know I'm about to name some folks who are probably really important to your work and perspective too, but, um, yeah, I find myself in conversation with the words and and work of fellow BIPOC food systems leaders and scholars. Um, so I'd love to point you in the direction of those who have been at this work for longer than I have. Um, off the top of my head, I'll give you a short list. Um, Karen Washington, Leah Penniman, Mine Lin, uh, Rowan White, Ashanti Enrique, Ricardo Salvador, Robin walt uh Wynonna LaDuke, and also Chris Newman, among many other BIPOC farmers and thinkers and community leaders. Uh, have really given us so much to work with.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I'll also add that, you know, personally, m- my work and, and personal ethics are rooted in disability justice and transformative justice practice. So from that cornerstone of my influences, um, I'd shout out that this year, a Dear Friend was part of compiling an amazing book called Beyond Survival, which is edited by jurisdiction Dixon and Leah Lakshmi's Getsna Summer mm-hmm. And I really hope that um, as you consider what a just future of food and ag looks like, um, that you seek out the work of these visionaries and really read and digest and discuss with the people who um, you work most closely with and who you love um, to start creating cohesion in your vision.
2: Well. Wow my friend, you know how I feel about you as a visionary. And I just truly, as a dear friend who's brilliant, I often look to you to um build that cohesive vision. So sharing so much gratitude for you and your work and your contribution, um through this conversation. If folks want to learn more or support your work, where can they go?
3: <laughs> Thank you so much. Um I really deeply care about you and I also look to you as a visionary in all of this. Uh, work, so oh, I'm glad that we have this conversation. Um mm. and it's you know, it's just one little morsel of many in our yes. friendship and relationship. So I'm glad to share that with people, too. But, um, yeah, yeah, I'm between a lot of projects right now, as you know. So some are coming to an end, and I'm also preparing to dig in much deeper and kind of build upon some of those big wild dreams in in the next coming years. But um, you can check out the relatively minimal website for my farm, which is at sweethollow.farm. And we recently just created a donations page. so if you're interested in contributing from some of our work, um, that's one way that you can, can support. Um, you can also email me at donehidexeto at gmail.com and I'll spell it out for you. So it's um G-R-A-N-J-E-R-X period z E R O at gmail.com. Um, and I offer my email because I'm definitely in the process of, of just permanently disengaging with social media these days, mm-hmm. uh, but into social media. My farm is still on Instagram for now and we're at Sweet Hollow Farms. Um, and then lastly, I will plug that I think my partner and I will finally be starting, um, this study group that we've been talking about for years, uh, this upcoming off season and... That's kind of coalescing around different themes of solidarity economies, food systems, um, also food production within revolutionary history. Um, and that study group has been a long time coming. So if you've if you're someone who knows me, you've probably heard me talk about this a thousand times. Um, <laughs> but keep an eye out for registration for that. <laughs> and you know, reach out if you want to help to organize. Um but yeah, I, I also just want to say that if, if you're out there and you're here to build the future too, um I've definitely been looking for you and I, I wanna know who you are. So please drop me a line. Um I'd love to connect and and keep, you know, deepening and broadening the vision that that we share. So thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. It was a joy to talk to you today.
2: Yay, I'm here. I want to build that future. I want to take that course. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's part of my day
1: hi everyone who's listening this is Elizabeth um, I just wanted to invite you to listen to a little bit of the conversation that veto and I have um, after our official interview we start by talking a little bit more about the course that veto and Caitlin are organizing and then we just dive into some really really juicy other tidbits that we thought that you all would enjoy so here is the rest of our conversation and thank you for listening My like caitlin and i teaching
3: and more of a thing where we um you know are taking seriously and, and kind of pacing out study and i i really hope to see that a working group of some kind kind of coalesces out of mm-hmm. that shared knowledge base um i know it's stuff that, that many of us are holding kind of individually as interests yeah. that we've had over the years, or um, academic work that we've done, or what what have you, but um, I think it's really important to come around to this as a practice to hold um, study together as, as farmers, food producers, um, other people, food workers. I think we really have to start um, piecing together those histories if we haven't before. And I think the opportunity to look at all of that together um, will give us so much guidance for for what we really need to dig in and do together.
2: Yeah. I feel like um, one of the things I, I am also part of a two and a half person co-op and (laughs) we, the three of us often like go into this really like juicy conversation where we do like a family history time travel and try to like place Uh our families in like a similar, like what was happening in like 1892 for all of our families. And it's such a (laughs) great way to get into a lot of these like deep rooted structural issues but like engaging from our, our an an ancestral experience. Which is really interesting because both Kelly and I are mixed and then Reed is deep generational Darrington rural. His family settled this place.
3: So wow. it's just all sorts of juicy. Yeah, that sounds super juicy. That's so interesting. I feel like one of the things that makes me think of Steve is like um Yes, yeah, get rooted in in the ancestral knowledge of where your people were at, and then also what's observable there. Sometimes when when I've done similar kind of like prompted imagination work, um, it's just the reality that our strategies are so deeply rooted. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's like the mm-hmm. history of, uh, for instance, like cooperative models of labor, like that shit goes mm-hmm. so deep,
2: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It's it's so deep
3: yeah those practices resonate, and we can build on that shit like now that we're in this moment of um technology, of empire collapse, of you know all of these different conditions that have put us in a new place with new sets of tools, um, I'm so eager to really dive into that that imagination with people um what do, how do our strategies evolve? And, and also, what strategies do we have to lay to rest? You know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there's, I've yep. been listening to a lot of really, um brilliant thinkers from the labor movement, like the contemporary labor movement. Um, and it's really interesting, like, there's a spread right now where people are talking about general strikes. Um, I think there was a call that was put out by Corporation Jackson um, wow. around April. Um for a general strike, I think, on May Day of this year. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And, um, you know, we've been seeing massive, massive uprisings and and folks taking to the streets. Um, And so the conversation of the general strike has been interesting to witness through the eyes of those labor scholars and and workers. Um, Because people are really skeptical. And I didn't really understand that at first because it's definitely part of my... Um, political uh, imagination that a general strike is something that can push systems towards disrepair. And Absolutely. I've been hearing, yeah, I've, I've been hearing the caution in people's, um, ways of relating to that idea in this moment of, you know, terrifying global pandemic, um, yeah. uh, the, the largest economic downfall of Maybe history, uh, and um, I've been I've been listening to folks talk about how the general strike is something that is a lot less accessible now because of how labor has shifted and because of how relationships to um, to worker power have been disrupted by ways that capitalism has evolved towards creating mm-hmm. like gig economies um, you know, private contractors, people who are contracted into types of labor that would prevent them from participating in something like a general strike.
2: A general and, and strike.
3: Using, no. Yeah, as having, like, agency and power by participating through strike. That's right. And I think that, that the way that those divisions of, um, the way that labor has been divided and, and isolated Um, The way that we as individual laborers are isolated from one another um, brings in a whole new kind of engaging uh, and still yet to be built kind of practice around how we reclaim agency and power. I think that's a really powerful moment.
2: Yeah, and I'm just like thinking about the part of our conversation as you were talking about, like, we need to remove the niceties and the euphemisms from mm-hmm. the conversation on hunger. It's like we also need to remove the niceties and euphemisms around labor. The fact that folks are are suffering every day in order yeah. for certain people to, to eat what's on their table. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and you work on the football, let alone know who grew that food and what conditions yeah. they have to live for. That's right. What were you going to say?
2: Oh, uh, I was just I was thinking about, like, general strikes and farmers and niceties. And I had this, like, tangent daydream where... Like what, what, what can farmers and food growers leverage? And what would the ask be? And I was imagining like gathering up my little Skagit Valley farmers and being like, you know, the only person we could leverage would be the co-op and <laughs> the grocery co-op, <laughs> the grocery co-op. Yeah, like we're yeah, not yeah. delivering vegetables on Friday and I just I don't know I don't know what would push us to do that
3: yeah you know uh, I think it's so my tangent no I, I think we should go into that tangent a little bit because I feel like okay. it was one of the things that I thought of while preparing for this conversation Um, is, is this question that I've gotten many times which is like well what does farming look like with our patalism? Um, or any, yes. you know, various incarnations of that same question. Um, and I honestly don't have a great answer yet. Of that is like, what is the ask? Aside from mm-hmm. what I already mentioned, about, like, we need free land, water, and resources. Um, yes. We need the ongoing access to support that is, um, non-dogmatic and with no springs attached. And, mm-hmm. um, those are the things I know we need. And I also know a lot of things that, um i feel like i can frame how it exists for me right now which is mostly like observations that are in the negative of things that we need to kind of stop parking on to some extent at least until we figure out what the actual demands are from yeah uh, from farm world and from agriculture towards a more just food system and i think one of those things that has come up recently in conversation. Actually, with your co-host, with Emma, Um, she and I were having a conversation a few days ago talking about um, what a precarious relationship farmers are in to emergency food systems in the U.S., um, you know, namely food banks. Um, There's there's built-in expectation that farmers, out of goodwill, are donating products. And that we can always be relied on for that. And I think there's some unseen dynamics in that expectation. Like, one, I think that if that expectation is held in a place where um, emergency food systems is relying on the goodwill of farmers, the actual ethical alignment that they're relying on there is to farmers who are of a scale like us right, where we are under five acres, mm-hmm. um, or even folks so we're in that kind of like small to mid-scale, let's say like under 100 acres, Yeah. Um, that we are aligned with the value of um, getting people's needs met enough that we find within our operations um, the capacity to be self-sacrificing and to say that it's free and we give it freely. And I think, while that is, you know, certainly an act of beauty and solidarity and um, something that has been a practice, you know, kind of in perpetuity, right? Like the the barter um, kind of side of of a lot of the attraction of becoming a farmer, right? Is the idea that we can find Mm -hmm. more self-sufficiency. Having that Mm self-sufficiency gives us different um, ways of relating to exchange and to the resources that we create and that we have access to. Um, I also think that it's a fallacy when it comes to the idea of how many people we will have to support in an emergency food system um, as of like literally right now, like last yeah. month, the month before.
2: Yeah. Um, I can so share yeah. I can share that I, we have a cool thing going with our local food bank where folks have donated into like a community food fund that we then mm-hmm. will draw on throughout the season to, um, feed folks who are using the food bank. And mm-hmm. I talked to one of the folks who organizes the food bank and they said that they were feeding Latin April of 2019, they're feeding 95 families. And now they're feeding 600 families. This year. That is, and we live in a very small community. That's half of the folks. That's half of my neighbors. Wow.
3: Yeah, that's my one fall.
2: So when you you talk about mutual aid as a survival tactic, it's real Mm -hmm. people are already doing it
3: because they Mm -hmm. have to they do have to yeah and i want to shout out too that like you know in that um in that ethic towards self-sufficiency that so many farmers have um we also know so much about mutual aid that i think hasn't always been (laughs) aid. Um, yeah. I think it's been tinted over with really bucolic visions of pastoral life okay. and all of this western yeah. shit but I yeah. we already really understand um, the value of what we do in community. and mm-hmm. I really, I think there's there's room for us to grow in our analysis there uh, of a, of a okay. young farmer movement of a small farm movement, organic farm whatever you want to call the movement of coalescing, that have come out of what's been there before, but um, I think, yeah, I just I want us to to turn to each other and acknowledge that, um, yeah, and, and to say this is this is a force of our leadership in community. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think it it sounds kind of um, maybe ditzy or like like it's something that's already very clear. When we talk about agriculture, um, in the word agriculture itself, is the word culture, right? But I do think that farmers, especially young farmers or beginning farmers coming into, um, you know, these really complicated dynamics around land access and water. Um, I think we... Oh, I lost my thought. Um...
2: Agriculture, culture.
3: Oh, yeah. I think that we've really forgotten that farmers are cultural workers. Like, we have a say in how the culture interacts with the work that we do. And we also need to reclaim a daily recognizable role for the voice of a farmer in just, like, civil, political society. I think we need to step up as the teachers and the educators and and the, the leaders that we are mm-hmm. inherently and i think i know a lot of farmers who are really shy about stepping up to how much they know uh, mm-hmm. and then building that, that public voice um and i myself have felt a lot of reservations too but I, I think it's um it's beyond time for us to find that voice and to listen to each other as individuals come out and speak from from the position that we have and the analysis that we have um, and then to start moving towards unity. Like, like mm. I said before, like, stuff we need to see will not happen without coalition. And so what is the coalition that farmers need right now? And I think when we look at the food access conversation, um, that we're all inevitably entrenched in, um, you know, if, if we take that, that niceties lens off of it and talk about yeah. it as production and genuine interventions against violence, um, I think our responsibility is clear you know i'm I'm really excited and, and um just so honored to be part of this network of young farmers across the country who understand the transitions and the transfers of power that we need to see and I really do want to push folks towards recognizing that the unsettlement of land um in a in a strategic way, we have yeah. to develop that maybe. We have to learn yeah. enough about what we do for our communities to have fruitful conversations about strategy. Beyond yeah. business owners, beyond mm-hmm. our big wild dreams of you know cooperative labor and living amongst friends, um, it's really for for saving the world. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know how else yeah. to say
2: it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we should have a whole other podcast on that. <laughs>
0: Someday, yeah, I'm,
2: yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah.
1: Whew. So good. So much percolating to do after that conversation. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.
0: All right, that's our show. We will be back next week with our final episode of The Way FC Takeover, an interview with farmer Ariana Delania, a farmer at Kamayan Farms, a vegetable, flower, medicinal herb, and educational farm. And we'll be talking about stress, anxiety, how to deal with it all, and keep farming during the pandemic. To make sure not to miss this and future episodes of the show, please subscribe, and we love to read your reviews and comments in iTunes. If you want to support our Washington chapter and our 45 other farmer-led chapters across the country, and make sure that young farmers and ranchers, farmers of color, and farm workers are included in farm policy, please become a member today at youngfarmers.org join. And you can join our advocacy network by texting FARMERS to 40649. Stay safe out there, everybody, and we'll see you next week.